0: Um, so what I want to do in this talk is um, defend two arguments or present two arguments Um, a primary argument and a secondary argument the primary argument is that extreme forms of violence against civilians such as genocide ethnic cleansing, mass killing or terrorism which is the form of violence that I primarily work on, these extreme forms of violence are justified in part, it's not the only way they're justified, but are justified in part by two sacrificial logics. The first and most obvious logic is the sacrificing of others, of the victims of extreme violence, uh, who are often with some professed regret uh, on the part of perpetrators killed um, for some future good. I very much like the idea, I haven't come across the phrase before, but um, uh, that Kim has mentioned a couple of times today of a sacrificial economy. This is the sacrificial economy, it seems to me, of the the, um, use of victims in order to achieve some future good. So that's the first sacrificial logic, the sacrificing of others. The second sacrificial logic is the sacrificing of selves, and in particular, one's sort of conventional moral scruples must be sacrificed in the name of some kind of future orientated project. Um, and this is because, in particular, um, the fact that very few societies can exist with underlying background moral norms of mass violence against civilians. Societies couldn't really survive if it was just accepted to sort of target civilians all the time en masse. So, consequently, when you do have these forms of extreme violence, they require some modification of the existing. Um, moral framework of uh, perpetrators, at least under modernity. I'm not quite sure whether that that's a trans historical claim, but at least under modernity, um, I think that's uh, true. Um, And in particular, the second form of sacrificial logic, the sacrifice of the selves, you sacrifice your moral scruples for a much harder, that's the most common word, but there are other words, sort of more brutal, in the words of the perpetrators, often more manly, valorization of a certain kind of violent behavior. Um, So in short, ends, very, very highly good ends, justify means that involve both the physical Destruction and the moral transformation of those in the present. That's my core argument. My second sort of subsidiary argument, and this uh, rela- relates to the, some normative work that I'd like to do one day when I have time, um, is that, well, two claims really here, that, that, that at the heart of both of these sacrificial logics is what I want to call a futurist fallacy which is, I think, at the heart of the essential ethical fragility of human reasoning over violence. And that futurist fallacy is essentially the failure to discount asserted future goods for their uncertainty. So promises of the future, predictions of the future, expectations of the future are treated as relatively guaranteed in the ethical weighing up of violence as justification, rather than discounted, which is a major problem because often these future goods turn out to be essentially fantastical, they never accrue. Um, which is a bit of a problem. I think that's interestingly not unrelated. I, you know, I, I, I said to Audrey, I think, in our original correspondence, that you know, sacrifice isn't a concept I use much in my work, but there the link to the notion of magical sacrifice, I think, is particularly strong. <laughs> that this is sort of, it's, you know, of course this will come. The gods will respond to our, our sacrifice. That's why it's okay to you know, kill however many people or animals we're, we're killing. So this is part of my broader project on um, the the core of my work is on the ideological dynamics of violence against civilians and it's part of the broader normative argument that I want to formulate which is a claim that the deepest ethical problems in the justification of war and political violence are actually not the problems of ethical principle or theory on which most existing political and moral literature about violence focus. I actually think the primary problem in morally regulating war are the questions of ethical praxis. And what I mean by that is the way that real world human beings apply principles and theories in practice. The underlying ethical theory of most justifications of violence is pretty familiar and fairly intuitive. It's consequentialist, it's self-defense, it's all standard claims that, that, that people deploy in the form of extreme violence. What goes wrong is the application of those ethical theories in practice and that requires I think deeper thinking about questions of ethical practice. So I'm going to try and refer to that a little bit um, throughout my talk throughout the rest of my talk. Um, so what I'm going to do is I want to present some of the research that I've conducted, it's not primary research, sort of secondary research off, off case specialists and um, archival documents collected by others. Um, on three, the three main cases I've done work on, which are the Nazi holoca- Holocaust uh, and Nazi atrocities, repression in Stalin's Soviet Union, and Allied bombing of Germany and Japan in World War Two. Uh, coupling, well, not coupling, tripling uh, in that third one with the other two cases will probably strike some people as an interesting uh, move. I will try and justify it uh, a bit later in the talk. So the first um, bit, uh, you know, the first document or the first discursive fragment that came to my mind when I started thinking about this talk um, was uh, this comment uh, in a private uh, correspondence by a German soldier fighting on the uh, Russian front in in World War II, um, who stated that after the war, the great peace will come for which all people are hoping. Fighting for that no sacrifice is too great. And I think this expresses both, uh, certainly the, 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 the um, sort of first and a half of the two sacrificial logics that I express, that all of this, this immense brutality and unparalleled levels of violence being witnessed on the Eastern Front, both, of course, towards uh, Russian soldiers, Russian civilians, other minorities, and also to the German soldiers themselves, is justified in the name of this grand future um, uh, that uh, this war is going to bring. And these sorts of sacrificial themes in Nazism um, had long roots. Omar Bartov, I think, argues very convincingly that their roots lie actually in the experiences on the front lines of World War I, or in particular the way those experiences were memorialized and mythologized in uh, the notion of the Kampfgemeinschaft or the battle community, um, which was constructed and disseminated heavily in the plethora of far-right nationalist paramilitary movements uh, in the Weimar Republic in the 1920s. Um, As Omar Bartov describes it, Exemplified in frontline journals for their own consumption, a vocabulary only they, the soldiers this is, could understand, and a new kind of sarcasm and black humor, this was a state of mind that combined a good measure of self pity with immense pride in their, the German soldiers, ability to endure inhuman conditions for the sake of a nation seemingly ignorant of and indifferent to their terrible sacrifice. And the idea here is that this notion of the Kampfsgemeinschaft depicted a community of soldiers and veterans, quote from Bartov: united through sacrifice and devotion to a common cause, the comradeship of warriors, and the quest to extend its new found values to post-war civilian society. And the story that Bartov tells, he's not the only one, is that Nazism built upon this idea for its notion of the Volksgemeinschaft, um, a, a, a nation of warrior people bound through war and violence and um, struggle. And it involved a fundamental normative reconfiguration of uh, traditional uh, German uh, society in favor of martial and sacrificial uh, values. So this comes out as soon as the sort of Nazis get together and start campaigning in the mid 1930s, uh, grassroots Nazi supporters. Uh, expressed their faith, this is one representative quote that quote, someday the world will recognize that the Reich we establish with blood and sacrifice is destined to bring peace and blessing to the world. And As the historian Michael Burley points out, Nazism in in advocating this kind of uh, sacrificial martial normative universe um, quote, represented a sustained attack on fundamental Christian values regardless of any tactical obeisance to the purchase it had on most Germans. Compassion, humility or love of one's neighbour were dismissed as humanitarian weakness by an organisation which regarded hardness, sacrifice and self-overcoming as positive virtues. So I'm suggesting here that alongside this consequentialist sacrificial logic that I'm going to come back to Sacrifice was involved in this valorization of the abandonment of conventional norms and values in favor of a set of norms and values which positively saw brutal sacrifice of oneself and others as being the highest uh, mark of of praise and esteem in the Nazi moral um, code. So this formulated in the Weimar Republic, it formulated in early Nazi propaganda um, and political activities, and then it is explicitly invoked time and again in Nazi atrocities in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, so at the at two and a half months before the launch of Operation Barbarossa, the massive Nazi-led invasion of the Soviet Union, uh, Hitler briefed 250 uh, senior officers in a speech I've quoted from extensively on the slide. Um, now, many of these comments, of course, People who justify violence don't parcel up their different justifications nicely and discreetly. You tend to see lots of um, uh, justifications operating alongside each other. A lot of my work emphasises how much um, assertions of threat are critical parts of the ideological dynamics of mass killing. That's obviously not what I'm talking about today, but you can see it in this quote. Uh, Communism is a tremendous danger for the future. We mustn't be uh, comrades. We must get away from the standpoint of soldierly comradeship. This is a war of extermination. Um, and If we don't regard it as stuff, we will be again confronted by the communist enemy in the future. So this strong prediction of future activities playing a key role in the justification uh, of the violence. The troops must defend themselves with the methods which, with, with which they are attacked. This is a projection onto the other commissars and the GPU, people are criminals. But crucially, this last line in the East, toughness now means mildness in the future. The leaders must make the sacrifice of overcoming their scruples. So this future justification justifying violence in the present and requiring the sacrifice um, of traditional moral scruples uh, and values. So both of these sacrificial logics very visible in this uh, quote. Uh, during the campaign... Uh, troops in Russia were told by their superiors statements like uh, this one on the next slide um, we are now embarked on a risky enterprise with no assurance of safety, we are advancing an idea of unity which is neither rich nor readily digestible, so it's a struggle but the vast majority of the German people accept it and adhere to it. This is where we are now risking everything, we are trying to change the face of the world hoping to revive the ancient virtues we shall we be suffering not only in the interest of ultimate victory but in the interest of daily victory against those who hurl themselves at us without respite and whose only thought is to exterminate us I would burn and destroy entire villages sacrifice if by so doing I could prevent even one of us from dying um, of hunger in uh, uh, killings of mass killings of Jews in Poland um, police regiments 25 uh, and 101 um, were told by the police commander of the Lublin uh, uh, district they were congratulated after their involvement in mass killings and uh, this uh, commander said I, I feel bound sincerely to thank you all for your indefatigable work as well as your proven loyalty to me and willingness to sacrifice you have all given your best for Führer, Volk and Fatherland in the tenacious hard and bloody partisan and fighting. So there's a lot else going on here, but I feel these kind of quotes make clear this underlying rationale and dynamic that I'm talking about, that these uh, assertions, these promises, of course none of which ever came about, so they end up being complete fantasy, none of these benefits accrue, are, are used to justify both personal sacrifice and the sacrifice of others on the altar um, for uh, long-run predictions of a Nazi utopia. Now, in Stalin's Soviet Union, we get very much the same dynamics in justifications of violence. And again, themes of sacrifice, just as they had deeper roots in the um, Nazi case, they had deeper roots in the Stalinist case. So early revolutionary Marxist justifications of violence in the early 20th century frequently Uh, grappled with the problem of violence very much as a regretful but necessary sacrifice needed in in the name of uh, revolution. So the Hungarian Marxist Georgi Lukács for example um, stated in some of his work on tactics and ethics there are situations, tragic situations, in which it is impossible to act without burdening oneself with guilt. The idea for which guilt is incurred represents an imperative of the world historical situation a historico-philosophical mission. Uh, Lenin's writings are full of this kind of uh, logic and reasoning. Um, Le- uh, Lenin uh, writes, we would be deceiving ourselves and the people if we concealed from the masses the necessity of a desperate bloody war of extermination, which I think very much gets on the idea that you know it's other people you're exterminating, but this is desperate, this is a sacrifice that you are also making in sacrificing them. Um, Uh, The necessity of a desperate bloody war of extermination is the immediate task of the coming revolutionary action. And furthermore, quote, revolutions are festivals of the oppressed and exploited. We shall be traitors to and betrayers of the revolution if we do not use this festive energy of the masses and their revolutionary ardor to wage a ruthless and self-sacrificing struggle for the direct and decisive path. In the Leninist era, Lenin's first chief of Bolshevik internal security, Felix Zdzinski, likewise called for a movement populated by, quote, the most determined, hard, and solid comrades without feelings feelings of pity, ready to sacrifice for the safety of the revolution. So again, individuals who will make the sacrifice of abandoning conventional moral values in order to conduct these forms um, of violence. Now, this continues, although it's also radicalized into uh, the Stalinist um, era. Um, And Soviet leaders under Stalin preached both of the sacrificial logics I'm identifying. During the Great uh, Terror, uh, 1936 to 1938, Nikolai Yezhov, who was uh, head of the, um, uh, uh, the prosecutorial campaigns that Stalin launched both within the party and within the country... Said, and I think this is particularly interesting. Sorry, before I read the quote, I should say, in the Stalinist era, we particularly get this notion of explicit recognition that many innocent people will lives will be lost. Um, but this is a justified sacrifice given the long-run uh, aim. So it's not even the notion of, kind of, we're sacrificing these guilty others, which is more the notion in Nazism. It's fine, yes, many of the people are innocent, it doesn't matter. So, quote, there will be some innocent victims in the fight against fascist agents. We are launching a major attack on the enemy. Let there be no resentment if we bump someone with an elbow. Better that ten innocent people should suffer than one spy get away. Um, Fiji's rights of this era... Um, And and this is very common, and it's very interesting how Stalinist leadership very much thought in terms of these percentages, um, and as those percentages of the figures dying were not particularly significant. Um, So so Feige's writes, as Stalin said in June 1937, if just 5% of the people who had been arrested turned out to be actual enemies, quote, that would be a good result. According to Nikita Khrushchev, Stalin, quote, used to say that if a report was 10% true, we should regard the entire report as fact, Everybody in the NKVD knew that Stalin was prepared to arrest thousands to catch one spy. Better too much than not enough, Fejov warned his NKVD uh, operatives. If an extra thousand people are shot, that's not such a big deal. Now part of the reason... I'll I'll give you one more quote before I reason about that. And Lazar Kaganovich, who was Stalin's commissar for transport and heavy industry, told his son, uh, these are unpleasant acts granted, but we do not find any of this immoral. You see, all acts that further history and socialism are moral acts. So what's interesting here is that there is a conscious willingness to embrace these kind of arithmetics. And I do this a little bit more in the rest of my work and the book I'm working on. But the reason why these extraordinarily brutal arithmetics are taken to be justified in Stalinism is because of the enormous immensity of what is to come. Right? So this is absolutely brutal. No one's denying it. But we're bringing about, you know, very much like the thousand-year Reich in Nazism, we're bringing about utopias on such a scale that we just have to do this. Um, and indeed, in some of their work, you know, Marxist revolutionaries who thought this way would point to the huge violence of past societies, the huge violence of capitalism in earlier eras, you know, to justify this. It's very much a world historical vision. These vast epochs, these vast epochal changes always involve thousands and thousands of deaths, so why, why worry about it too much? Um, now again th- so, so that's, that's sort of focusing on that first logic, the idea of you, you sacrifice these innocent lives for these kind of long-run future goods but then there's also in Stalinism endless repetition of this idea of sacrificing older moral scruples and schemes in favour for a truer, harsher, harder, courageous revolutionary um, morality um, so party members that, that later interviewed by Fiji's recall being told quote, uh, by, but this is by party uh, leaders or, or party Uh, superiors, quote you must assume your duties with a feeling of the strictest party responsibility without whimpering, without any rotten liberalism, throw your bourgeois humanitarianism out of the window and act like Bolsheviks worthy of Comrade Stalin, beat down the Kulak agent wherever he raises his head, it's war it's them or us again the other sort of threat self-defense scheme uh, going on here. And it seems from some of the research done on, on, on um, uh, Soviet citizens and Soviet public opinion that at least large numbers of people did sincerely to some degree buy into these ideas. So um, uh, citizens uh, interviewed would say things like, I had my doubts about the five-year plan but I justified it by the conviction that we were building something great a new society that could not have been built by voluntary means. Today, this is interviews conducted after the fall of the Soviet Union. Today, I understand that it was very harsh, but I still believe that it was justified, uh, or another. Uh, We were convinced that we were creating a communist society, that it would be achieved by the five-year plans, and we were ready for any um, sacrifice. And the novelist uh, Boris Pasternak wrote in a private letter in 1935... At the time, this is now back to contemporary uh, discourse. The fact is, the longer I live, the more firmly I believe in what is being done, despite everything. Much of it strikes one as being savage, yet the people have never before looked so far ahead, and with such a sense of self-esteem, and with such fine motives, and for such vital and clear-headed uh, reasons. Another uh, piece of testimony from later uh, on. Uh, Neither I nor the young people around me had any anti-Soviet feelings. We simply found in the heroic tension involved in the building of a new world an excuse for all the difficulties. The atmosphere of undaunted struggle in a common cause, the completion of the factory, engaged our imagination, roused our enthusiasm, and drew us into a sort of frontline world where difficulties were overlooked or forgotten. So again, this is very strong, I find, theme of... Uh, The sacrifice, it's it's a struggle, Uh, a lot of suffering is caused by it, but it is ultimately justified by this long-run consequential expectation. Now what I want to suggest, and this this could be easily the controversial thesis of a paper in its own right, but what I suggest in my broader work is that the sorts of justifications we see in these extreme forms of mass violence under Nazism and uh, Stalinism are not in fact unique to the most manifestly, obviously evil forms of mass violence throughout history. Actually there are a common set of what in my book I call justificatory mechanisms that run through all forms of violence against uh, civilians if they're political forms of violence against um, civilians. Um, And so I'm repeating that that claim here by suggesting that as with the other justifications I've, I've tracked in my work, when we look at liberal bombing of Germany and Japan uh, in World War II, again, similar patterns recur. Now, I want to make two very clear clarifications here. First, I am obviously not claiming that Allied bombing in World War II was morally equivalent uh, to the violence of the Nazi and Soviet regimes, nor was the ideological detail. What I'm saying is that there was a certain justificatory structure which was held in common. The other thing I'm saying, and the thing that, if you don't know much about Allied bombing, might seem initially contentious, is that it is important to recognise that Allied bombing did not kill civilians accidentally, People who believe that have believed a mythical legacy of dissimulation provided by the American and British governments in World War II. Um, As leaders of the bombing campaigns themselves made absolutely clear, they killed German civilians intentionally as part of a conscious strategy um, of war. So we need to be aware of that uh, from the start. Now, the sacrificial logic is not contained within utopian visions in the same way that it is in Nazism and Stalinism. Nevertheless, the fundamental tone and the fundamental reasoning of the argument, the long-run benefits that will accrue from this suffering, justify it, is the same. And as Arthur Harris, the head of uh, British Bomber Command, stated, Attacks on cities, like any other act of war, are intolerable unless they are strategically justified. But they are strategically justified insofar as they tend to shorten the war and to preserve the lives of Allied soldiers. Um, This is the fundamental moral core of of how the uh, Allied powers saw themselves as behaving. After the Allied Casablanca conference in 1943, General Arnold, one of the senior uh, U.S. airmen, uh, sent an aide to the air staff with a memo explaining, this is a brutal war, and the way to stop the killing of civilians, which we regret in this story, the way to stop the killing of civilians is to cause so much damage and destruction and death that the civilians will demand their government cease fighting. So in consequence of this, we get the continuous assertion from leaders of the bombing campaign amongst both the British and the Americans that by mass bombing of German civilians in German cities, the war is about to be won. So in February 1943, Arthur Harris said that German surrender due to bombing was imminent. In August 1943, he told Portal, another senior member of the um, uh, British military, we can push Germany over by bombing this year, August 1943. And in November 1943, declaring himself, quote, certain that Germany must collapse, End quote. He told Churchill, quote, We have not got far to go, but we must get the U.S. Air Force to wade in with greater force. We can wreck Berlin from end to end. It will cost us between 400 and 500 aircraft. It will cost Germany the war. By December 1943, Harris specified a date. Uh, 1st of April 1944 was when uh, bombing would bring the war to the end through, quote, destruction of between 40% and 50% of the principal German towns. And these conceptions were typical. Uh, Indeed, when you go back to some of the archival documents, it's amazing the sorts of statements that were made in defense of bombing. Uh, The assistant chief of the air staff uh, made the claim to Churchill that we are convinced that bomber command's attacks are doing more towards shortening the war than any other offensive, including the Russians. Right? So the entire Russian front and the defeat of all of Hitler's armies in the east, that's nothing compared to the mass destruction of German civilians and housing uh, going on uh, in the cities. It's an extraordinary uh, vision. Um, it's worth... Well, I'll finish with a couple other quotes before I come back to this point. Um, we get this most clearly in the justification of the atomic bombs and the dropping of uh, atomic weapons. Uh, so... Uh, didn't want to go on with that, so I didn't put this on the slide at the end. Um, so Truman said after the war uh, I ordered the atomic bomb to be dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was a terrible decision, but I made it. And I made it to save 250,000 boys from the United States, and I'd make it again under similar circumstances. It stopped the Jap War. Uh, and uh, similarly, again Truman nobody is more disturbed over the use of the atomic bombs than I am, seems a somewhat doubtful uh, statement, uh, having ordered them, Um, (laughs) but I was greatly disturbed over the unwarranted attack by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor and the murder of our prisoners of war, the only language they seem to understand is the one that we have been using to bombard them when you have to deal with a beast you have to treat them as a beast, dehumanization, interesting Uh, there, Uh, US General Groves about the atomic weapons said we were trying to perfect a weapon that however repugnant to us as human beings could nevertheless save untold numbers of American lives. Now again, everything hinges here of course on whether these benefits actually accrue, whether the the ends that are provided for the action are actually the ends to which those actions lead. So it's important to stress that um, although the assessment of exactly what bombing did in the world is complex, most, uh, almost all historians and both the British and American bombing surveys at the end of World War II suggested that at the very least these claims were one Wildly inflated. And in fact, that bombing contributed very little towards hastening the end of the war. Now, if that's the case, those that died, died for no ultimate ethical gain. There was no actual accrual of advantage. Now, there were many things that bombing did do that was important. I'm not trying to suggest otherwise. But the targeting of civilians was not an effective strategy. And it was not an effective strategy because the causal logic... Used by those to justify it, namely target the civilians, you'll cause immense pain to them, and they'll overthrow their governments or put pressure on their governments to uh, surrender, was a causal mechanism that never actually operated in reality. Um, And this is now widely um, accepted. There was just no capacity for civilians in wartime to put realistic political pressure on their governments uh, to surrender, certainly not when those governments were as authoritarian um, as Germany's and Japan's. So that was all sort of the first sacrificial logic, right? The people will have to die, but it's a worthwhile sacrifice to end the war uh, quicker. But we simultaneously get the second sacrifice, sacrificing your moral scruples in favor of this hardness necessary to win the war. So um, surrounding moral concerns about the bombing, which did exist at the time, you get this plethora of discourse from senior military leaders of the effect, for example, General LeMay, uh, senior American uh, Air Force officer, uh, all war is immoral, and if you let it bother you, you're not a good soldier. Um, a military officer, he explained, could not, quote, mope about the deaths he has caused. U.S. Secretary of War, uh, Henry Stimson, Uh, argued that uh, he had quote, seen too many stern and heart-rending decisions to be willing to pretend that war is anything else than what it is. The fact of war is the face of death. Death is an inevitable part of every order that wartime leader gives. Notice also here a certain kind of um, uh, issue of responsibility right? This violence is just intrinsic to the war. It's not something that we actually decide on so we just have to sacrifice our moral scruples because this thing has to occur. It's not a a consequence of human uh, agency. Uh, Arthur Harris likewise urged his superiors to disregard, quote, the sentimental and humanitarian scruples of a negligible minority, uh, end quote. Uh, General Arnold said, quote, We must not get soft. War must be destructive and, to a certain extent, inhuman and uh, ruthless. Uh, a lot of these various justifications come together in this quiet passage. I think quite—I think fun would be an unfair way to describe it, but uh, intriguing uh, passage. This is from the Daily Mirror. Uh, the press were uh, hugely supportive of the bombing campaigns in both Britain and um, America. Uh, this Daily Mirror. Sorry? Yeah I'll, yeah, I'll come through to it. So the, the Daily Mirror uh, article uh, here says, This is the only policy. This is the only effective method available to us in self-defense. This is the offensive. Bomb for bomb and the same all round. The only policy. The air war is no time for lecturers and gloved persons willing to live up to a high standard of ancient chivalry, so we can all retire. Um, the invention of the bombing plane abolished chivalry forever. It is now retaliate or go under. We are not dedicated to passive and polite martyrdom. We must hit back. Also, the dislocation of German communications and nerve centers is essentially a military objective, if really it is reasonable to go on making this almost obsolete distinction, a distinction that wears very thin. People are killed, this is the sort of most interesting part, people are killed in the devilish war of today everywhere, anyhow. People killed are, in tens of thousands, useful workers, mainly war workers, the implication being that therefore this will be very beneficial uh, to the war effort. So to bring this case to a close, as Richard Overy concludes, quote... The argument for bombing Germany derived from assumptions about the moral character of total war, inspired by a vulgarised Darwinism in which the struggle of nature was transposed onto the struggle between nations. In both Britain and the United States, wars of national survival were regarded as different in character from other forms of warfare, for they permitted the states under threat to use any means, however ruthless or indiscriminate, to defeat an enemy deemed a priori to be fighting just such a war. And just to indicate that, aside from World War II, the pernicious consequence this had, after the war, many American military officers took this thinking forward into how they thought about future wars in the post-Cold War era. Sometimes those policies were not carried out in practice, so in the 1940s, U.S. Air Force General uh, Orville Anderson found it reasonable to suggest indicating, uh, sorry, initiating a preemptive nuclear war of aggression against the Soviet Union, um, asking, which is the greater immorality, preventive war as a means to keep the USSR from becoming a nuclear power, or to allow a totalitarian dictatorial system to develop a means whereby the free world could be intimidated, blackmailed, and possibly destroyed? To a reporter, he stated, give me the order to do it, and I can break up Russia's five A-bomb nests in a week. And when I went up to Christ, I think I could explain to him why I wanted to do it now before it is too late. I think I could explain to him that I had saved civilizations. There's a senior general genuinely claiming that sort of launching total war, bombing, and nuclear bombardment of Russia is justified because of a certain necessity that if you don't do that, Russia will be able to nuclearly blackmail us in the, in the future. Uh, in Vietnam, similar, similarly, General Icah, who was a senior uh, officer in World War II, now retired, he responded to failure in Vietnam uh, by saying, how much better, this is a quote, how much better it would have been, if necessary, to destroy North Vietnam rather than to lose our first uh, war. Um, So an extraordinary indifference to the suffering of others uh, is created by this mindset, and I think it's created by these two sacrificial logics. The first sacrificial logic of, look, This level of death is just necessary because here's the future that this is required as a path uh, 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 to go to. And the second uh, uh, sacrificial logic, sacrifice your traditional moral qualms because for this kind of context, for these kind of ends, you need to do these kind of things. And I think the fact that we we think of ourselves as a sort of civilized, open, democratic societies, that many in our societies were perfectly convinced by those kinds of rationales and logics indicates their power in the justification of violence. So to come back to to, to bring this to sort of a a, a very depressing conclusion, um, uh, sacrifice does feel to me to be woven into concrete practices of violence in this way. And for me, this really emphasizes the need for the normative argument that I suggested at the beginning. That actually, it's not that the society, certainly not um, British and American society, lacked literatures on the just war at this time. They had plenty of that. It wasn't that we were unclear about the essential ethical theorizing or principles of how we justify war. What was problematic was ethical praxis. The way in which people thought in such a context and the way in which they applied what seems like a basically normal, justificatory structure of consequentialism, self-defence and so on, to justify utterly um, genocidal policies uh, in uh, practice. That suggests to me that it's not the underlying sort of theory that's really the problem here. It's thinking about how we get people to think in sophisticated ways and the application of theory uh, to practice. uh, I.e ethical practice, as I'm calling it. So I'll leave it there. Thanks very much for the (laughs) opportunity.